Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis 2, verse 18. And we'll go through to verse 25. And I'm continuing the series on marriage and family. And I think tonight's message is probably the most important in this whole series. Because this is going to lay the foundation. And the theme for this, this afternoon is, what is marriage? What is marriage? Genesis 2 verse 18 to 25. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you once again for an opportunity to hear your word this afternoon. And thank you for those who have come and for those who are, have the opportunity to listen to the sermon online or to listen to the recording later on. And I pray that you would use your word as a sharp two-edged sword, a double-edged sword, and cut right into our hearts and remove whatever sin there is and bring conviction of sin and bring repentance to our hearts and forgiveness to our hearts, Lord. And then grant us grace to live as Christians and those who aren't saved, would you give them the privilege of having eternal life and give them the privilege of forgiveness and give them the grace that brings us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> so what is marriage? One man many, many years ago told me, if a man and a woman sleep together, they are married in God's eyes. The moment they sleep together, they are married in God's eyes. Another man who's living with his girlfriend speaks of her as my wife. Uh, the Dutch Reformed Church at the general meeting decided to say that homosexuality, if two men get so-called married, or two women can get married. Uh, our previous president of South Africa, Jacob Zuma, he had six wives, um, and many of them being married to them at the same time. King Henry VIII in England in the 1500s also had six wives, uh, but not at one time. He divorced some of them, he executed some of them. And then I, I met a man, I knew a man who also spoke of his wife, but he just got married in his lounge by some self-proclaimed prophet, just did a little ceremony, but there were no witnesses. It was the man and the woman and this prophet. So it seems to me that people are really confused about what marriage is. So how should we view marriage according to the Bible? Let's read Genesis 2 verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bone 
bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, number one, first answer to our question, what is marriage? It's a covenant of friendship. It's a covenant of friendship. And I'm not talking about what primary school kids do. You know, in primary school, two friends, they'll shake hands and say, promise, pinky promise, cross your heart and hope to die. And they'll make this promise that we will be friends forever. This is not what I mean with a covenant of friendship. No, what marriage is, it's a sworn covenant. It's a very serious covenant. Not just, oh, let's shake hands and we're friends. This is a sworn oath, really, between two people that they will remain friends as long as they live. They will remain friends until death separates them. And where do I find this? I find this in a number of verses in the Bible. Uh, let me show you. For instance, in Proverbs 2, in verse 17 speaks of a woman, now she's unfaithful to her husband, and it says, she forsakes the companion, there's the word friend, she forsakes the companion of her youth, and forgets the covenant of her God. Or another verse in Ezekiel 16, and verse 8, that's a parable of God's relationship with Israel, in a sense his marriage to Israel, a spiritual marriage, but then he says, when I passed by you again, I saw you. Behold, you were at the age for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you. There's the covenant. I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then in Malachi, that's the last book of the Old Testament, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14. Why does God not hear us? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, there's a word friend again, and your wife by covenant. And then the last uh, verse is in Matthew 19, verse 4 to 6. And here we read again of marriage, and it says, Jesus answered, Haven't you read that God who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So marriage is something God institutes. They, will, they make a covenant to remain friends until death separates them. And we see this in verse 18. In the word it says, then the Lord God. Now that name, Lord God, is the Hebrew word... Um, Yahweh is Lord and Elohim is God. So God reveals himself as Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew name. It's a covenant name by which God said to Moses in Exodus 3, basically God said, I will redeem, I will deliver, I will save the Israelites from Egypt and they will become my people and I will be their God. That's the covenant. And the covenant name is Yahweh. Now in Genesis 2, this name Lord or Yahweh, this name re reminds us of God's covenant with man, his covenant with Adam. As in the book of Hosea 6 verse 7 says, God made a covenant with Adam. 
And the covenant is that God wants a personal friendship with human beings and that human beings must represent God on earth. Like in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, God makes us in his image. We are his image bearers. We must represent God in the world. And the Bible describes this covenant between God and man as a marriage. Like in Isaiah 54, verse 5, it speaks of God's marriage. God is the husband of Israel. Or Ezekiel 16. Or in Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32, it describes Jesus' relationship with the church as a bride and a bridegroom. So, so our marriage, our marriage as a husband and wife on earth, a, a man and a woman, that is a picture of God's covenant, God's marriage to his people, as we see in Ephesians 5. All right, so, so where a husband and a wife become one in a marriage, it's a picture of God's covenant, but it's also a picture that in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there are three different persons, but it's only one God. And in the same way, a husband and wife, they're two different persons, but they become one in marriage. Verse 24 tells us that. So what am I trying to say? This is a bit technical, but what I'm trying to tell you is, you will not understand marriage correctly unless you first have a covenant of friendship with God. That is number one. If you just see marriage as a place where you feel safe and you can experience love and you have a friend and you can enjoy sex and you can raise children, well, then you've got it all wrong because someone's going to come to you and say, I can enjoy all those things and I'm not even married to the woman. And what are you going to say then? You don't know what to say. And the reason you don't know what to say is because you start at the wrong place. You start with humans. You're starting with man instead of starting with God. If you want to understand marriage biblically and correctly, if you want your marriage to be built on a firm foundation, if you want to enjoy marriage as God intended it, then you need to stand in a perfect relationship with God, just as Adam and Eve did before they sinned. You need to stand in a right relationship with God. And for, in order for that to happen, you need to be cleansed of your sin. You need to be pure. You need to be not guilty. And immediately someone says, but how is that possible? We're all sinners. How can we be not guilty before God? Well, Jesus is not guilty. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is pure. And Jesus took the punishment for our sins. And if you ask the Father, then God the Father will accept the life of Jesus as if you lived it, and he will accept the death of Jesus as if you paid for your own sins. So is that true of you? Does your conscience testify? Does the Bible testify? The people who know you well, do they testify that you are a friend of God? And that you love God just like a young bride and bridegroom love each other. And if that is so, then it will be visible in your life. Not just in general, it'll, in particular, it will also be visible in your marriage. It will be visible in your marriage where you and your spouse, you and your wife, or you and your husband, you are best friends. A covenant of friendship. Like in... Like in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 16. This is my beloved and this is my friend. And that is very important. 
especially for younger people. You're in love, you want to get married, or maybe you're older, you're in love, and you want to get married. But that's important because if you're going to build your, your marriage on emotions, on being in love, you're going to build your marriage on just externals, and this woman is attractive, and look how pretty she is, and she's well-built and all of that. You're going to build your marriage on that. It's, it's not going to last very long. You must be best friends. If you're not friends and you fight like cat and dog and you're not even married yet, your marriage won't last. It'll just fade. Because you now you're not in love anymore and now your wife's not pretty anymore. She's getting wrinkles and she's getting grey hair and she's getting a bit fat around the hips or your husband's ate the lack of boopens and now you're not in love anymore and so now the marriage just goes down the drain. And this also, it's not only for people who are engaged or people who are in love and they're planning to get married. This is also for people who are married. You need to be best friends with your spouse. You need to spend time visiting together, chatting, spending time, growing together. Not just uh, and doing stuff together, not living separate lives. And you're living in the same, same house, but you're living separate lives. What's going to happen? In, in, the end, in the end, you'll get divorced. Or maybe you'll remain married, but you'll be, you'll be miserable and lonely. Number two, second answer, what is marriage? It's not only firstly a covenant of friendship, but number two, it is an, it is an institution of God. So the, the books by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, <coughs> according to a friend of mine, he loves The Lord of the Rings. But he says the movies have really messed up the story. They've got it all wrong. The way they portrayed it, that's not at all how J.R.R. Tolkien would see it. Now, I think some, anyone who watches the movies, if you watch the movies and now you want to rewrite the book to fit the movies, you'll be wrong. And in the same way, you can't rewrite the Bible because it doesn't fit the cultural understanding of what marriage is. And that's a big mistake that the, the Dutch Reformed Synod made, the Dutch Reformed Church. They made a big mistake when they said unmarried people can just live together, they don't need to be married. Or when they said that, that so-called gay marriages are acceptable. If the Dutch Reformed Church, and the world for that matter, if they accept Genesis 1 and 2 as history, and not like many people do, they just write off Genesis 1 and 2 and say it's just a myth, it's not real. If they accepted it as history, then they would have known from Genesis 2 that God instituted marriage. And if God instituted marriage, then God gets to say what marriage is and what marriage is not. Number three. Third answer, what is marriage? It is a gift. According to the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, uh, marriage was for unspiritual people. So if you're really spiritual, then you don't get married. You, you, you're a monk or a nun. Uh, and that, that's exactly what 1 Timothy 4 verse 3 tells us, that false teachers will come and they will forbid marriage. So according to the world, uh, marriage is it's something that limits your sexual freedom. Oh, I can't have sex with anyone I want, now I'm married. And besides, it's better just to live together than get married because marriage usually just ends in a mess. And then you'll get some men, they mock. They mock and they scoff and they make jokes when, they, when their friend gets married. They'll say, oh, now he's, now he's imprisoned, now he's in jail. Uh, this is a lifelong sentence. Another one has bit the dust. 
And this man has now lost his freedom. And they have filthy bachelor's parties to joke about that. But according to the Bible, marriage is God's gift to men and women. It is a gift of God that he gives so that we will not be lonely. Verse 18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Marriage is a gift. Proverbs 18 verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. He obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19 verse 14. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 31 verse 10. A prudent wife who can find. She's a valuable woman. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7 speaks of marriage as a gift. So you see, when, when God created the world in Genesis 1, again and again you read this phrase, and God saw that it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. There's one thing that is not good when God creates the world, and that is verse 18, chapter 2. It is not good that man should be alone. And only, only when God creates marriage, he says in chapter 1, verse 31, it is very good, this creation. Now perhaps you say, but I'm not married. So now, you, now you're telling me marriage is God's gift, but I'm not married. So now I'm missing God is withholding good gifts from me. No, he's not. God has given you another good gift, and that is the gift of singleness, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7. And I preached about that a few weeks ago. You should use your singleness to serve God, and you should see God's solution for your Loneliness is not found in marriage in your case at this moment, at least, but it's found in friendships and in family and in the church, the body of Christ, where God gives you friends and a family to enjoy. Fourth answer, what is marriage? Number four, it is a team effort. Now, any sports team has a captain and although he's the captain, he can't play the game alone. He needs the other players. And in the same way, in marriage, the man is the captain of the marriage. Ephesians 5 verse 23 is the head. But he can't play this game alone. He needs a team player. He needs a wife. And what the man's job is, is he needs to lead his wife spiritually. He must love his wife. He must take care of his wife. Ephesians 5 tells us that. And where do we see his leadership? We see male leadership in marriage in the fact that God created the man first. He didn't create Adam and Eve at the same time. He created the man first, and then he created the woman. That's male leadership, and we see that in 1 Timothy 2 verse 13. And then he created the woman out of the man. So he put the man to sleep, and then took one of his ribs and created the woman. The, the man wasn't created from the woman, but the woman was created from the man. That's male leadership again, says 1 Corinthians 11 verse 8 and 9. And then, uh, furthermore, we see that the man gives, named, he gives names to the animals in verse 18 to 20. But then he also gives a name to his wife. Verse 23, she shall be called woman. Chapter 3, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve. So giving a name to someone is leadership. You give your children names. That's leadership. You even give your dog a name. That is leadership. And so the man gives his wife a name. And then, finally, when it says he gives her a name, 
we see that she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 23, the Hebrew word, she shall be called Isha, that is woman, because she was taken out of Ish, that is man. Ish, Isha. And so you see that in English, man, woman. Do you see the word man in woman? Woman. And we see the same even in marriage. When people get married, the woman takes her husband's surname. Her surname changes to her husband's surname because he's the leader. Now that doesn't mean men are more important than women. In Galatians 3 verse 28, how are men saved? By faith in Jesus. How are women saved? By faith in Jesus. 1 Peter 3 verse 7, it says, yes, your wife is weaker, uh, maybe physically but, and emotionally, but, but she's equal to the man in terms of salvation. They are co-heirs of the grace of life. Equal partners of the grace of God's salvation. <coughs> so yes, they're a team. But there are different roles in marriage. And both roles are necessary. Although the husband leads the team, both the husband and the wife need to play their part if marriage is to be a success. Now, I'm going to preach all about these marriage roles. What is the husband's job? What is the wife's job in a marriage? What are their roles? But today I just want to show this from verse 18. It says in verse 18 that God will create, I will make a helper fit for him. He's going to make a helper. So the woman is the husband's helper. So the man needs help. The woman needs to stand by the man. Man is not Batman. I work alone. No, you're not Batman. You're not a lone ranger. You need your wife's help. And the man who he gets his wife's help and the man who gets the input of his wife in a marriage will be a very happy man. And he will, he will prevent himself from making stupid decisions. And he will save himself a lot of trouble. Like in 1 Samuel 25, there's a very uh, prudent woman, a very wise woman. She helps David. Or in Proverbs 31, verse 11 and 12, you read of the, this wonderful woman and the way she works is she helps her husband. Charles Spurgeon the great Baptist preacher in England in the 1800s. His father had first-hand experience of this because one day uh, Spurgeon's dad went on, to, on a preaching trip and as he was going on the preaching tour, he, he became concerned for his family. He thought, this is not right. You know, I'm preaching the gospel in other cities and other towns, but what about my family? Are they all right? So he went home and as he walked into the house, he heard his wife praying in the room for every child. And he knew that his family is in good hands and he could go on his preaching tour, and he did. And in my case, I, I've experienced the same kind of thing, where I can focus on my work because my wife teaches the children in school. We homeschool our kids and my wife buys the groceries and my wife cooks meals for us and my wife even uh, drives around doing the necessary trips that we need to get done in a month or in a week. And then my wife even gives me good counsel. She did that uh, a bit more than a year ago probably now, where I was afraid because I thought, I'm, I'm just working all the time and I don't get to spend enough time with my kids. And my wife helped me. She said, why don't you take one of the kids each Monday? And because my kids are teenagers now and I don't want to lose them. And she said, take one child every Monday, take them for an ice cream and just chat for two hours. Just ask them questions and... And that's been wonderful. I've enjoyed the time with the kids. The kids have enjoyed it. What good counsel my wife gave me. And I think all women should 
follow this good example. Be wings to your husband that will help him fly. Don't be like lead around his ankles and you, he's trying to swim and you're sinking him. Don't be a wife like that. Find ways to help your husband rather than just lying on the couch for hours reading a book or spending time on Facebook, on your phone or on WhatsApp or whatever else. And then for the husbands, use your leadership to build your wife up like a good captain will do for his teammates. Because if you're going to break your wife down, you're actually just shooting yourself in the foot. It's to your own disadvantage because Ephesians 5 verse 28 says that if you... If you're going to help your wife, in the end, you're actually helping yourself. If you build up your wife, you, you're doing it to your own advantage because she's your teammate. So see your wife as an equal. She's an equal, but she's got a different role. You're the leader, but you're equal before God in terms of uh, being humans. And this text tells us that. Genesis 2 tells us that because it says that that God made the woman out of the man's rib. So it's Adam's DNA. It's Adam's blood and his bone and his, his muscle, his, his flesh, his meat. She's family. So you see in verse 21 to 24 how God makes her. And he says in verse 23, she's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's just another way to say she's family. Like in Genesis 29, 14 or 2 Samuel 5 verse 1. So here we see that God, God makes the whole of woman, the whole of woman, she's got XX chromosomes, if you remember biology. He makes the whole of woman from just a part of the man. Man has got XY chromosomes. So God takes the X and he makes two Xs for the woman. Now God doesn't make Eve from Adam's skull so that she can sit on his head. She can treat him like one of the kids. He doesn't make Eve from Adam's heel so he can trample on her. But he makes Eve from Adam's side so that she can stand next to him right under his arm. He can protect her, but she's with him. They're a team. So for the men here, I want to ask, do you hold your wife under your arm? Do you protect her? Do you cherish her? And for the wives, I would ask, are you standing by your man? Are you standing by your husband? Do you help him? And for husbands and wives, I would ask, do you share your lives with one another? Or do you just share the same bed? You just share the same house, but everyone's just living for himself. Well, you are sinning if you're working against your mate, against your spouse. But you're not only sinning, you're shooting yourself in the foot, as I said earlier on, because you can be doubly effective if you work with your mate. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 90, 12. Two are better than one. You'll grow, you'll grow better spiritually if you work together. You'll raise your children with greater success. You'll be emotionally, you'll be more stable. Even, even bodily, you'll be more stable and healthier. Answer number five. What is marriage? It is hetero, heterosexual. That's the opposite of homosexual. It is heterosexual. Now, according to the, the world, according to unbelievers, there are not only men and women, there are more than 50 other genders. And obviously that is nonsense. That is nonsense. 
because God created only two genders. He made male and female, according to Genesis 1 verse 27, and Genesis 2 verse 7, and Genesis, the passage I just read. There are only two genders. Matthew 19 verse 4, from the beginning, Jesus says, God created them male and female. So marriage is not meant for two people of the same sex or the same gender. And the world now tries to distinguish between sex and gender. That's nonsense. Marriage is not meant for two people of the same gender. It's not meant for someone who gets an operation to change his gender or his sex. It is not meant for people who wish they were another gender. It's not meant for people who try and convince themselves, oh, yes, I have um, male biological parts, but really I'm a female. No, that's nonsense. You are the sex that you were born. You are the gender that you are born. You're born a man, you're a man. You're born a woman, you're a woman. Now, some people was just diving here and jump in and say, I can prove genetically, I can prove it, that I am born different. Well, if you mean by that that you were born homosexual, you have no proof of this genetically. You cannot prove this scientifically. And if you're born with two parts, a male part and a female part in your body, well, that is a genetic abnormality. That is not normal. That is an abnormality, a result of the fall. Most people don't have those abnormalities, but you have XX chromosomes, which is female, or you have XY chromosomes, and that is male. There does, simply does not exist special chromosomes for people who think and tell themselves, I am a different gender. According to Genesis 2, marriage is meant for one natural woman with one natural man. Just like Jesus. Jesus is a bridegroom and he has a bride. Jesus is not a bridegroom who has a bridegroom or some other, something else. According to verse 18 and 20, 18 to 20, God created woman as a helper fit for man. She fits with man. A woman fits with a man. She is to the man what a lock is to a key. They fit together. And so you cannot marry someone of the same sex, just like you cannot marry a crocodile or a penguin. So so-called so transgender marriages or so-called gay marriages, that is nothing else than rebellion against God's institution of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. And you find this in many places in Scripture where it calls homosexuality sin. And even transgender behavior is called sin in Deuteronomy 22 verse 5. A man that wants to be a woman or a woman that wants to be a man. Number six, what is marriage? It is exclusive. So there's a movie, a Christian movie called Fireproof. Most of you have seen it. And the main character is called Caleb, Caleb Holt. And Caleb and his wife have terrible marriage problems. And then Caleb becomes saved. He gets converted. He's a Christian. And now he really works hard to try and save his marriage. And at one stage he finds out that there's a certain Dr. Keller that's flirting with his wife, and so he goes to the hospital, goes to the doctor's office, and then tells him off and tells him right, and back off and get away from my wife, and then before he leaves, he lifts up 
his fist and he shows his fist to the doctor just to try and tell him, actually, Catherine is my wife. My wife. Now that is a very good illustration to tell us that marriage is exclusive. It is one man for one woman. Verse 24. Therefore a man, singular, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, and they, these two, shall become one flesh. Jesus taught the same in Matthew 19. Marriage is not meant for people who try to cheapen it because they're just living together, but there's no covenant. There's no sworn oath before God and a covenant with one another made before witnesses. Hebrews 13 verse 4 warns us about people who, who make marriage cheap. And this exclusivity of marriage, the exclusivity of marriage also means you do not have the right to intrude in someone else's marriage by committing adultery. They do not have the right to intrude into your marriage by committing adultery. The Ten Commandments tells us that. You shall not commit adultery. The New Testament teaches that. And then marriage is also, it is also not a place for a man to have two wives, or three wives, or four wives. Even if people in the Old Testament did so, that is not part of God's idea and His design and His blueprint. God's blueprint in Genesis 2 is one man for one woman, not one man with many wives, as in chapter 4, verse 19, where Lamech took two wives. Jesus taught the same. One man for one woman. The two shall become one. Genesis 19, verse 4 and 5. Male and female. And then furthermore, marriage is not a place for parents to intrude and to come and interfere. And I'm going to do a whole sermon on in-laws. But just very shortly, no marriage will be successful until both parties, both the husband and the wife, realize that they are starting a new family. And they, both of them should leave their parents. Verse 24, the man shall leave his father and mother. Genesis 24, verse 58 and 59, you see Rebecca leaving her parents. Psalm 45, verse 11, and it speaks of Christ's married marriage to his people, the Messiah's marriage to his people, which is the ultimate, and there it shows again, <coughs> even the woman leaving her family to cling to a man, to be united to her husband. So don't cling to your parents. And then they still, they still take care of you financially and they take the decisions for you, make decisions for you in your marriage. And they're your number one confidant and you share all your secrets with them. That is not how it ought to be. You should be united to your wife through marriage. Verse 24. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You must see your wife, you must see your husband as the number one human relationship. Your number one human relationship is not your parents. God put a man and a woman, a husband and a wife in the garden, not a parent and a child. 
Now, some would say, according to J. Adams, some would say, yes, but blood is thicker than water. So this, uh, these family ties, it's thicker than, than just the marriage, this woman from outside taking my son and being married to him. No, that's not true, says J. Adams, because covenant is thicker than blood. So the, the, the parent-child relationship is not more important it is not a stronger bond than the one flesh relationship wherein a husband and wife share everything. They share a house. They share a bed. They share their bodies. They share their lives. They share their time. They share children. That is a fruit of this one flesh, flesh relationship. They, they share their possessions. They share suffering. They share praying together. And many other things. Verse 25, for at the end, they shall become one flesh. We read, of, we read the same thing in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. So that I actually read from it just now, if you were awake. Uh, Malachi 2, verse 15. Didn't God make them one? This is husband and wife with a portion of the Spirit in their union. So there you see the union, the oneness of marriage. Now this one flesh relationship it is expressed in the marriage bed. It is, in, it is expressed in sex in marriage, a sexual relationship. Verse 24. And we know this from, from 1 Corinthians 6 verse 16 where it speaks of a man being sexually immoral, uh, sleeping with a prostitute and it says he becomes one body with her. And then it refers Back to this verse, quoting the one flesh relationship. So the one flesh relationship is much more than a sexual relationship, but it's expressed in intimacy in marriage. <coughs> so the question then is, or the statement I like to make here is, how strong your sexual relationship is with your wife or your husband? In most cases, not all cases, because some people have biological problems and they cannot come together. But in most cases, the, how strong your, your sexual relationship is in marriage will show how strong the unity in the rest of your marriage is. That's the indicator. That's the thermometer to show how strong the unity of that marriage is. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand at this point. But I want to ask you, your marriage bed, your intimate relationship, your sexual relationship with your husband or, or wife, what does that show of how it's really going in your marriage? And I'm going to do a whole sermon on, on sex in marriage. And then finally, number seven, or second last, number seven. What is marriage? Answer, it is permanent. It's permanent. Nowadays, you can click with a few clicks on your computer on the internet and you can get a divorce. And the reason for that is the world, they don't place a high value on marriage. But God does. And God says marriage is permanent. Verse 24. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. Hold fast, cling to and Jesus said in Matthew 19, it should not be separated. Man must not separate it, what God has joined together. 
Because if you, if you separate the one flesh relationship, it's like, it's like sticking two papers, two computer papers with very strong glue and then trying to tear them apart again. You're going to do great damage. <coughs> so I want to encourage you to work on this unity in marriage, to promote the unity in your marriage. Get something to do together as a husband and wife. Go out together. Go and have coffee together. Do it often. Go on date nights together. Visit with friends. Go on holiday together. Read a book together. Sit at, at the table together having a meal instead of sitting in front of the TV. Pray together. Read the Bible together. Have family worship together. Go to church on the Lord's Day together. Finally, number eight. Question, what is marriage? The answer, it is open. It is open. It's an open relationship. You know, I'm amazed. I don't understand this. Maybe someone can explain it, and I don't think you have a good explanation. Probably. I'm amazed when I hear that married couples have passwords for their cell phones. Well, my wife doesn't know my password. My husband doesn't know my password. It amazes me. It amazes me that, that husbands and wives, they hide their salaries from one another. My, their pay slips. My wife doesn't know what I earn. My husband doesn't know what I earn. It amazes me that financial statements or bank statements or your will is hidden from your wife or from your husband. It shouldn't be like that. You don't even hide your body from your spouse. Well, then you have nothing to hide. Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked. and They were not ashamed. Now, someone might say to me, yes, but my husband and I or my wife and I, we do withhold our bodies from one another. We haven't had sex in 20 years or in 10 years or in 5 years. That is sin. And it will have detrimental consequences. You just read 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1 to 5. You may not withhold your body from your wife. It is not yours to withhold. It belongs to your wife. You may not withhold your body from your husband. It is not yours to withhold. Your body belongs to your husband. If you don't come together often in sexual, relationship, in sexual relations, Satan will tempt you with immorality. Don't hide stuff from your wife. Don't hide stuff from your husband. Don't live in the dark. Don't be a hypocrite. Hypocrite. Don't live in being, what's the correct word for? I'm looking for, I know the Afrikaans word. Achterdoch. Uh, were you, were you suspicious? Don't live in suspicion. You're always being suspicious. Be open. Be open like they were in verse 25. And if there's sin in your life, confess the sin and ask for forgiveness and come clean through the blood of Christ and confessing your sin. And especially in the area of being unfaithful sexually. Are you viewing the naked bodies of 
people you're not married to, either, either in the flesh or on a screen. You should be ashamed of that. Because it's, it's not what verse 25 teaches. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Their bodies are for one another. Meant for one another. For you to view the naked body of another man or another woman, it's not part of being a Christian. It's not what it means to be a Christian. It shouldn't be part of a Christian's life. And in the end, it will lead to hell. Jesus taught that in Matthew 5. And we saw that recently, the, the scandal of a man, um, a Christian apologist, a very popular Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias. Where for many, many years, years and years, he lived a scandalous life, living in sexual immorality, even using spiritual talk to convince women to do ugly things for him and with him and to him. Very sadly and sinfully, even using his ministry's money to fund his sin. And then saying to one woman that this is God's reward to me. God is rewarding me for my faithful ministry. Therefore I can be sexually immoral. And then warning her not to tell anyone because millions of souls will be lost. Because his ministry is so important. How sad. How sad. And when he died, saying that he, on his deathbed he'd never been unfaithful to his wife. But he lied. He lied because the facts prove, and his life now proves, that, that he detested and he hated God's institution of marriage. Oh, may the Lord protect us so that we will be faithful to our spouses. And faithful to the gift God has given us. This gift of marriage also. Being thankful for it. And let us be an accurate portrayal. Our marriages be an accurate portrayal. And an accurate picture. Of Jesus' marriage to his church. And may we not smear the name. And blacken the name. And smudge the name. Of our lovely Savior. Let's pray. Our Lord and God. Thank you for your teaching in Scripture, for this blueprint of marriage and for helping us to understand this truth. And I do pray that you would help us to glorify your name in the way we love our wives and the way our wives submit to their husbands and respect their husbands. And help us in this, the rest of the series also to, to not be so influenced by the world that we don't even think straight, but we... We twist it in our thinking about marriage. Help us to think about marriage in a biblical and a godly way. For the glory of your name we pray this. Amen.